I want to just uh, introduce Mike DeSelm to you. Mike has been with us for several years, and I'm so grateful for his friendship. I've known him prior to him coming here, uh, and we've just developed a, a great friendship over the years. And one of the things I appreciate about him is his heart for Jesus, and not only his heart for Jesus, but helping people to walk in the Jesus way, to making them accessible both in his own life and then as he goes towards people, showing them who this Jesus is and what it means to come after him. Mike serves in a variety of ways here at Riverbend, whether that's the worship team, teaching team, leads a community group, but he also is part of an incredible organization called Generosity Feeds. I encourage you to check them out. They do a lot with those who are underserved in different communities and providing food and meals and to walk alongside those communities and to come up with a strategic plan long-term to help them. And so I'm just grateful to have him share with us today as we're continuing our teaching series, Freedom Starts Today. Let's give it up for Mike DeSelm. Good morning, Riverbend. That sounded a little weak. Let's try that again. One, two, three. Good morning, Riverbend. Yay! All right. So we are on week two of a series called Freedom Starts Today. Um, This is going to be a tough message to hear and a tough message to share, but I promise you it's going to be 100% real. So if you have any reservations about what you think you might hear in the next... 30 minutes. Uh, This is my disclaimer to you to uh, be prepared. So uh, this is a series based on the book Freedom Starts Today written by a pastor named John Elmore. Uh, John pastors a church down in Texas and his recovery story, his freedom story, is recovering from alcohol addiction. Now if you weren't here last week, I really, 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 really want to encourage you to go to riverbendonline.org or go to our YouTube channel or go to the app on your phone. Everybody should have a, you know, probably has one of these cool gadgets, like put people on the moon kind of thing. Uh, Check out last week's message by Pastor Chris. Uh, Very, very good. Not only was it his first message, but uh, I don't know if he's ever going to be able to step to that gate again because he did such a great job. Um, No, but seriously, Chris did a phenomenal, 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 phenomenal job. And... The premise of what Chris shared last week was about gaining victory over his addiction through accountability. Now, accountability is kind of a big, scary word. It's maybe a very Christian word for those of you guys that don't do church on a regular basis. And basically, it just means asking somebody to come alongside of you, walk with you, and ask you hard questions, be faithful to asking those hard questions, but also be a friend to lift you up when you've heard those hard questions or maybe when you've stumbled. I certainly know I've stumbled, and uh, I won't talk about anybody else because this is not that, not that kind of church, not that kind of person. But the premise for today's message comes from Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. And here's what it says. It's up on the screen. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses, and here's the next part that's really important, and renounces finds mercy. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. This is the foundational statement of this series. And let's be really, really honest, right? It's human nature, absolutely human nature to hide our shortcomings. Show of hands, who likes being wrong? (laughs) Y'all, gotcha. We have one random person. Everybody, thank you for being 
the person. Yes, no, nobody likes being wrong. We hate it, and we certainly hate it when we make mistakes and when we get called on the carpet for making mistakes. Nobody likes it. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. It's tough. But if we never acknowledge our mistakes, if we never say, hey, I I made a boo-boo, hey, I stubbed my toe, I said bad things, I did bad things, we've wasted a growth opportunity. We've wasted an opportunity to be honest and transparent. We've wasted an opportunity to not just learn, but to be humble and, and, and just go, wow, I really don't want to do that again. John Elmore, the author of this series, uh, of this book, actually puts it like this. He says, everyone has something in their life that shouldn't be there. It's the human condition. Maybe addiction isn't your thing. Maybe judgment is. Maybe addiction isn't your thing, but a lack of humility is. Maybe pride is your stumbling block. Maybe your ability to be really, really smart but have no empathy for someone else is your stumbling block. Everybody has something that shouldn't be there. And that's okay. Memo, you're not perfect. Thank God. Man, if I was perfect, I would totally botch up the Jesus thing because I would be getting all sorts of things wrong about other stuff. Like, I, I don't have time for that. I can't be perfect. Thank God. So here's what I want to say to you this morning. It's okay to not be okay. I want you to internalize this. It is okay to not be okay. We are all going to have seasons in our life where we are very much not okay. COVID, for a lot of us, has put a lot of us in a not okay place. What's not okay is to stay there. We are not intended to stay in a place of brokenness, in a place of woundedness, in a place of victimhood, in a place of hurting. We aren't called to stay there. We're actually called to be free. And so when Chris and I were talking about this devotional back in February when he started it, and I started it shortly after it, we had this idea like, we don't want anybody else to live in chains. We want people to experience the freedom that Christ offers. So if you're not a Christian, that's totally cool. I'm super glad you're here. Really, like, super glad you're here. I want you to know that, hey, there's freedom from the, the weight and the guilt and the shame and the frustration that you might be carrying by surrendering your life to Christ. If you're a Christian, memo to you, you're not supposed to carry the heavy burdens. Let Christ do the heavy lifting. It's okay to not be okay, but it is not okay to stay that way. The journey of life is filled with moments, a series of moments, a collection of moments. Some of these moments are absolutely amazing. They might be the best moments of your life. You know, for me, some of the best moments of my life are when I met this woman right here. This is my wife of Nicole that was on our 20th anniversary earlier this year, sitting on a beach in Miami. It was great, phenomenal, wonderful. Maybe you have great moments where your heart flutters because you see someone you love. Maybe your heart flutters when you have the birth of a child. These are, these are my two girls. I couldn't find one of all three of us that were super, super small. This is 20 years ago when my youngest daughter, Gabby, was born. Sometimes we have celebration like last week where we baptized folks, where we welcomed folks into the kingdom of heaven, into the celebratory place of life with Christ in baptism. Sometimes we have that moment, that perfection, where you just you stand at a place called Mavericks and you look out at the sun as it sets and the surf as it comes in and you don't hear any cars, you don't hear any planes, all you hear is the roar of the ocean. Life is a collection of small little moments. And these are the moments that we cling to and say, yes, these are sweet, these are good, these are real, these are the things that we want. 
But there's also some moments that aren't so good. And I think all of us in this room know how to identify that. There are moments of deep pain, isolation, moments of loss, moments of sorrow, moments of failure. I remember being told by a counselor friend of mine that feelings aren't bad. Can we all agree that we have feelings? We have, I hope we all have feelings. Um, we all have feelings. Feelings aren't bad. You can't change or prevent the way you feel. Your feelings are your emotional response to a moment. When I look at those pictures, I have an emotional response to those moments. 20 years with my wife, the birth of my children, looking out at a, a great surf break that is just calming to my soul. Feelings are good. But feelings can hurt. And they can be devastatingly destructive. Because how you respond to those feelings can sometimes be really, really bad. I don't want to go there yet. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel lonely. It's okay to be in these places of hurt. It's not okay to stay there. So for me in my story, this is where I continually need the daily freedom that Christ offers. Every single day. For years, I had hidden away the sexual trauma of my youth. Long left unspoken were the awkward encounters where my innocence was taken advantage of, where my youth was preyed upon. Years later, when I'd been left in the care of a family friend for a summer, I found that confidence betrayed yet again. I'm not alone in that. Like so many others, I have struggled to reconcile those experiences, those feelings, those emotions, the emotions of the things that have been done to me, the emotions of the things that I have carried on to others. Feelings of shame, abandonment, betrayal, not feeling worthy of love. For those who have been sexualized or abused, especially at a young age, it is not uncommon to respond to that kind of trauma by withdrawing. It's also not uncommon to respond to that kind of trauma by doing the exact opposite of withdrawing and pushing it all out on everyone else. At five years old, I mean, how do you explain to your parents something that you don't even know how to explain that had been done? Or or maybe as a teenager, you know how to explain it finally, but the shame, the weight, the guilt... Like, did I, did I do this? Did I bring this upon myself? Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Did I, did I you know, was, obviously it had to be me. That, I mean, why would it happen not just once but twice? Like, right? Like, you bury it all down. You put it in a box and you say, you know what? I'm not going to deal with it because, I, A, I don't know how to deal with it. And B, dealing with it is just too uncomfortable. The problem with putting it in a box is that box becomes caustic. The sin, the shame, the guilt starts to bubble up like this festering ooze. And it seeps its way into everything in your life. It seeps its way into your relationships. It seeps its way into the way you view yourself. It seeps seeps itself into the way that you view others. And it creates this poison, this vitriol, this... Yuck. 
Years later, I would find myself jumping from relationship to relationship, kind of like a pinball in an arcade game. I was never in any one relationship for very long because I didn't know how to maintain depth and I didn't know what intimacy looked like. I thought that love meant like you're there for a moment and then you're gone. I thought love was like, hey, I, I got mine, deuces. But I was also struggling with this deep feeling of abandonment. And so I was never single for very, very long. I didn't know how to be alone. I was not content in my own skin. I certainly didn't know how to look in the mirror and say, what's going on inside of you? The mantra I had was that a bad relationship was better than no relationship. And with every breakup would come more wounds, more shame, more worthlessness, more abandonment. But not just to me. I was continuing the cycle of trauma and inflicting it on person after person after person. I wasn't just wounding myself, I was wounding others. To cope with this, I would drink. Or I would go to those online websites, there's, there's young ears present, so parents, I'll let you handle that conversation when you decide it's the right time to have that conversation, out of respect for you guys. Go to websites that you shouldn't go to. And I would self-soothe. I'd do what it took to take care of me, to make myself feel good for the moment. Now, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, my, my parents were very open about a lot of things. It is what it is. It was what it was. So I did what I thought I was supposed to do. Take care of me. There's a saying, I'm sure some of you have heard this before, Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And I was the true example of that. The life that I was living was a life of hurt and hurt. And I'd been hurting for so long that I thought it was normal. I thought that that was just the way it was supposed to be. In 1997, I met the woman who would later become my wife. Oh, yes. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. We needed that brevity moment. Thank you. In 1997, I met the woman who would later become my wife. I'd never had feelings of love the way that I had with this woman. She brought out every good thing in me. But the caustic, bubbling trauma inside remained. The behavior patterns of my youth were at war within me. You could say that our dating relationship had its struggles. On again, off again, on again, off again. So on again and off again that I actually had to propose to my wife three times. She said yes the first time. First time was magical. I carried her down to Sunset Cliffs, got on a knee, 19 years old baby, you're my everything, let's do this. And she said yes, and it was great. But then that caustic trauma found its way back into my life. Didn't know how to control that, didn't know how to deal with it. So that proposal didn't end very well. And then later, when we were on our off-again cycle, she was about to get deployed over to Japan. And I, I knew I loved her. I knew I couldn't live without her. I knew this was the woman I wanted to spend my life with. And so I'm like, meet me in Vegas. I'll fly down from Seattle. You can drive up from San Diego. 
we'll meet in Vegas. You won't have to go. It'll be great. And she's like, no, 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 no. That's not serious. When I finally proposed to her for the third time on her birthday, she said yes, but there was stipulations. You will plan the wedding. Cards, cake, minister, venue, music, food. All I want to do is show up with your ring and my dress. And I was like, okay, bet. Let's do this. Except I had four months. <laughs> and we did it. St. Patrick's Day 2001, a little church on the Naval Base in Puget Sound, Washington. It was good, but I was still bringing all that caustic trauma into our marriage bed, into our relationships, into our relationships with our children. I loved her deeply, but my brokenness nearly led to our demise. So let's fast forward to 2003. Uh, I went from, 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 Virginia, uh, from Seattle, Washington to dive school in Panama City, became a hard hat diver, got orders to a SEAL team in Virginia Beach. Soon as I got to the command, it was no, November, I want to say, and I, I checked in and I was immediately put in a platoon and I was gone. Our marriage was already pretty tenuous at that point. Uh, I was home for Christmas, but I was gone from January to April, and then I was home for a week and then gone and then home, then gone, then home, then gone. And this was the life, I mean, this is 2003, it's right at the height of the global war on terrorism, and I'm stationed at a SEAL team. We were busy. Until August, I get sat down by my master chief. He said, Mike, you're a great kid. You're fun to play golf with. We love hanging out with you. But I can't trust you downrange. You're fired. I'm like, how do you get fired in the Navy? Is that even possible? Apparently it is. I got fired. I was the number one student in my dive school class. I was the number one student in my surgical tech class. I was the number one student in my medical training class. I was not the honor grad in boot camp, but I was pretty close. I understood how to be a good student and how to be a good sailor. This shook me to my core. I already knew that our marriage was in a bad spot. Certainly, you can't take away my career, too. And so I told Nicole, I came home after being fired and having to explain to your wife that you've been fired, and if anybody's had to explain that to a spouse or anybody like that, that's, that's a tough conversation. I said, we need to go to church. And she looked at me and said, what? Eyes. Doink, doink, doink. Nicole grew up in church. I didn't. She certainly wasn't expecting that I would want to go to church, and yet I did. And something beautiful happened. Something really, really beautiful happened. My faith began to grow. I began to find freedom. I, forget, I began to find uh, an understanding for the, the things that I had dealt with. Uh, I ended up becoming baptized in June of uh, 2004, and we, you know, she was leading in kids' ministry. I was leading worship for kids and in the adults. And in community, God revealed himself to me through this scripture. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I want you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 17 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. They'll be up on the screen. The author, Paul, a dude who knew something about Old Testament law and, and what it was to be uh, a perfect Jew who found himself in a relationship with Christ through a blinding experience, 
says this. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's, say this word with me, sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? I learned through that scripture that all of the shame and the guilt and the yuckety-yuck, muckety-muck, trash-garbage pain of my life was not me. I also learned that all the things that I had done as a result to cope and deal with that shame and guilt, while horrible, somehow God in his infinite grace found a way to say, you're forgiven. I love you. But, actually God never says but. Actually he says, I love you, you're forgiven. There's more work to be done. Walk with me. Let's go on this journey of reconciliation. Now, if that is like a weird, scary word to you, how many of us actually like doing our books, doing the accounting in our house? My wife is probably the only person who's going to raise her hand. And, of course, the McDaniel family. Thank you, thank you, McDaniel family, for keeping Riverbend afloat and keeping us on the right. Um, to reconcile means to set right. It means to bring into harmony. It means to bring into balance. Where there was deficit once or imbalance, we are now creating balance and harmony. How many of us need harmony in our checkbooks? Amen. This scripture told me that God had already done the work through Christ to bring me back to him. I had already been forgiven. There was work of reconciliation that needed to be happened, but because of my faith, I had been set free but I still needed to deal with all that junk. Just because you're forgiven, just because there's an answer for it, doesn't mean it goes away. That stuff still sits there and stews and becomes caustic if you don't deal with it and address it. One of the great things about the church that I came to faith in is that they had a counselor on staff. They had a Christian counselor, much like we have Tom and Beth Ann Miller here, a part of our faith community, to walk with us through those difficult seasons, to help us make sense of that which doesn't make sense. I pursued that counseling, trying to think of the right analogy, so I just won't say it. I pursued that counseling like somebody who was starving. I was hungry because I'd found freedom from this heavy burden that I had been carrying. Because in the counseling, we talked about where Christ was in all of that and what Christ had done for me, was doing for me, what, will, what he will do for me, and not just me, but all of you, I learned that, yes, I'm human, and I, the, the human condition is ugly, but I'm a new creation in Christ. 
I'm set free in Christ. I'm made right with the Father in Christ. And even though there's these ugly things I need to deal with, that still doesn't change the way that God the Father looks at me and loves me. Christ-centered counseling taught me the difference between guilt, godly guilt, and satanic shame. In guilt, we say, hey, I made a mistake. I feel bad. I need to make amends. In shame, in Satan's shame, he says, there's no redeeming path in you. There's no way out. In guilt, we recognize that we are convicted. There's conviction to make things right. Satan says, no, 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 I condemn you. God says, hey, it's about confession. Satan says, no, it's about blaming others. God says it's about recognizing the truth that we have done something wrong. And Satan says, no, 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 you are wrong. Guilt says that there's a sense of something true but difficult to face. Shame says it's always connected to a lie. When healthy guilt can lead, I'm sorry, while healthy guilt can lead to our healing and open us up to a relationship with God and with others, shame shuts us down. In her popular TED Talk, author Benet Brown says that shame is a focus on the self, while guilt is a focus on the behavior. Remember I said earlier, feelings aren't bad. It's what you do with those feelings. It's the behaviors that you act out with those feelings that can be unhealthy. Shame is a focus on self, while guilt is a focus on behavior. Guilt acknowledges that I did something bad. Shame says that I am bad. And I'm here to tell you, you are not bad. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad it's been. I understand you might be walking around with a ball and a chain and a limp and, and hurting and feeling like you've just backed up the, bank, the Brinks truck of shame and guilt up to the church parking lot. I'm glad you brought it here. Leave it in the parking lot. Jesus has already taken care of it. He's already done the heavy lifting. He's our baggage handler, folks. So we don't have to be. Godly guilt led me to sink, seek accountability and reconciliation. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he, meaning God, Christ, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How does Christ purify us from all unrighteousness? He died on the cross for your sins. You are covered in the blood of Christ. The atonement has been paid. You are purified in the eyes of God if you believe that Christ is who he says he is. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to be anything else. You just got to be Christ. Thank you and faithful. That first confession that I made was to God. I made it publicly on June 6, 2004 in a baptismal not too different than that one. And I told everybody, hey, the old is gone, the new has come. And I am so thankful because I don't know if I can carry this burden anymore. My faith grew. Our leadership skills grew. Our marriage was getting better, although it still had a lot of work to do. We found ourselves at a leadership conference in January 2005. Now, my, you know, for those of you who heard me speak before, you, you know like I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and most, most Christians, present company excluded, give me the heebie-jeebies. Um, I thought a lot of Christians were like Ned Flanders, stuffy, uptight, 
you know, never said a bad word, never drank a beer, never smoked a cigar, never did a bad thing. And if that's not you, that's cool. And if you don't do those things, that's cool too. You do you. However God leads you. But I had this view that, that, that Christians were really, really, really stuffy and difficult and awkward and no fun. And so going to this leadership conference was like a really, really difficult thing for both of us because Nicole grew up in a church called Assemblies of God and everything was dresses and uh, the, you know, they, they hid the liquor you know, in the woods behind the, the church because they didn't want anybody else to see it. Um, you, know, they, you don't dance. You know, you, it was different understanding, and that's okay. God in his infinite glory, grace, and wisdom knows that each of us need to approach him differently. Thank you, Lord. So we go to this conference, and I'm feeling pretty good. My, you know, my, my addictions are starting to subside. My, my understanding, I've got accountability. I've got a good friend who's walking with me, and we meet once a week, and we ask each other hard questions, like when's the last time you looked at something you weren't supposed to look at? When's the last time you kissed somebody who wasn't your wife? When's the last time you took care of your business on your own instead of making sure you spent that time intentionally with your wife? I think you guys can understand what I'm talking about. Every, every time we met, hard questions to make sure that I was walking a straight path to make sure he was walking a straight path. His name's Chuck Kaysen, dear friend of mine. I still see him on a regular basis. We're at this conference, and the speaker is walking around, and he's walking around, and he's walking around, and he comes over to this side, and he looks right at me, and he points at me, and he says, if you want to be the leader that God's called you to be, you've got to come clean with everything. And I was like, oh, God. It was like God literally looked right at me, gave me the finger and said, you have work to do. I'm not letting you off the hook. You need to go make things right. You've been doing a lot of healing, Michael. You've been getting a lot of help, a lot of counseling, and this has been really, really good. But your work is not done yet. You still have reconciliation to do. And I said, please, God, not tonight. Please, God, not any night. I've done, I'm good. I'm better now. I'm, I'm walking a straight walk, and, and I'm being a good husband and a good father, and I'm faithful, and I'm accountable, and I'm teachable, and I've got accountability. I'm doing all the right things, Lord. He's like, no, 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 no. You have to trust me on this, Mike. And he'd been telling me this for months. He'd been like, Mike, you, you, you need to go talk to Nicole. You guys need to have a hard conversation. The marriage that you want to have is waiting for you on the other side of that conversation. You need to go have that conversation. I'm like, dude, God, seriously, like, this is going to be bad. And so, like, I go talk to my best friend Chuck, my accountability guy. I'm like, dude, I need you to come home with me tonight, and I need you to be the bouncer because she's going to come at me with a knife. It's going to be bad. It's going to be ugly. And Chuck looks at me. He's like, I can't do that for you, Mike. You know I can't do that for you. I'm like, okay. And so I go talk to my counselor who's at, at the conference with us, and I said, Kevin, I need you to come home and, and play mediator tonight. She's going to come at me with a knife. It's going to be bad. And he says, I can't do that for you, Mike. I'll pray with you, though. And so my friends prayed with me, and we sent home. And that night, that night, we had the hardest conversation of our marriage. Things that she suspected were confirmed things that she never knew I had been dealing with were shared. Nobody slept that night. I didn't even know if we were going to make it through the night. I'm reminded of this passage in James chapter 5, verse 16, where James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other 
so that you might be healed because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Some translations say, is powerful when working. I saw it a lot of prayer that night and we had a lot of conversation. No, th- no fists were thrown. No knives were drawn. But what I thought was an irreparable rip in our marriage had been exposed. Now, if you know my wife, you know she's the kind of person who doesn't like it when people know her business. So I do have her permission to share all of this today. Our, our, our children's ministry director, my wife, fully understands what we're talking about today and has, I have her permission. Her father passed away when she was 16. She had the durable power of attorney and she had to make that decision. She lost her mom when she was 11 to breast cancer. Lung cancer, lung cancer. This is a woman who knew loss and had to make some hard decisions from a very, very early age. And I was fully expecting that she was going to cut ties. Now what happened for her after losing both parents is she said, all right, God, I'm done with you. We can't have conversations. We can't be friends anymore because every time I ask you to do something, you don't do it. And every time I ask you to heal me or heal something, you don't do it. And so Nicole was not on talking terms with God until that next morning. We went back to the conference. We sat on the opposite side in the back of that, of that church. And worship is going, and, and, and I'm just sitting there crying because I'm like, this is it. God, you said, trust you, I trusted you, and it's all over. Thanks a lot. And then she reaches over and she puts her hand on my knee. And it was like she touched me for the first time. It was like that very first date. And she looked at me, she says, I don't like you right now. In fact, I don't know if I love you right now. But God says, I have to forgive you. And God also says that if you screw this up, you're dealing with him, not me. And I watched God make good on a promise to reconcile a marriage. Later that week, our son was conceived. My son will always be a permanent reminder to me of God's goodness and faithfulness. From a marriage that I thought was over to a blessing of another child and a marriage that has stood the test of 20 years. And that's pretty awesome. Thanks for walking it with me, babe. God reconciled a marriage that both of us thought we were rapidly broken. And in the years since, we have seen God move time and time again, not just in our story, but in the stories of others that we've had a chance to share our story with. Because we believe that God takes your deepest hurt and uses it to be his greatest ministry. And from that day forward, my mission in life has been to create on-ramps for people to experience the radical grace of God. Because once you've tasted it, you're like, dude, that is the best drug ever. I am free. Do I still struggle? Yeah. Do I still have that caustic box? It bubbles over sometimes, and I have to talk about it. And I've got great friends like Chris to ask me the hard questions. Hey, Mike, are you still walking the right rock? But because of reconciliation, I found freedom from shame. And so I want to ask you today, do you want to be healed? If you want to be healed, it's got to start with reconciliation.
Reconciliation begins with transformation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. So it starts with that. Your roadmap to reconciliation starts with being a new creation. Reconciliation is the will of God. In verse 18, he says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself. It's not your work, it's his work. And he's already done it for you. The work that you need to do is being honest with yourself to go and make things right and have those conversations. And in those conversations, you need to know that reconciliation requires forgiveness. It requires somebody letting go of of an offense that's been done to them. Little do you know that forgiveness is also about you setting yourself free from holding them accountable and holding that hurt towards them. Reconciliation is an act of obedience. He has committed us to the message of reconciliation. Ultimately, reconciliation is about God's justice. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And that was God's way of settling the score. So whatever you're facing, whatever problems you're dealing with, I promise you they are not bigger than God. His holy desire for you is to have a life and have life to the full. And that life is full when you are experiencing freedom from the shame and the guilt of sin. That life is reconciled or realized when we are reconciled, when we are stored to right relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son. And so we're going to ask, do you want to be healed? Everybody, everybody, remember? Everybody's got something that's there that shouldn't be there. And it doesn't have to be big and heavy and ugly like mine, and that's okay. I hope it isn't. God, I hope it isn't. Because that's an ugly cross to carry. Do you want to be healed? If you want to be healed, we need to fix our eyes on the wounded healer. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he wasn't. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed on him, and it's by his wounds that we are healed. So, do you want to be healed? If you want to be healed, then you need to submit everything to Jesus. That was the challenge he placed to me, and it's the challenge that I think he's placing before all of us. Chris said it best last week. He's like, what's that last 5% that you're still holding on to? Last time I preached, I talked about it not being Jesus and something else. It's just Jesus. There is no and. It's just Jesus. Submit everything to him. Ask him to walk with you as you guys do the hard work together of reconciliation. One of the ways that I have found freedom is to make sure that I have accountability software on all of my devices. Parents, this is something that you probably want to have on your servers at home as well. Not just for you and your kids, but for the people who come over to your house. Covenant Eyes, I want to say, is $10 a month. Is your marriage worth $10 a month? Mine is. Blocker X works on every tablet and phone. And I want to say it's only $5 a month. Is your marriage worth $5 a month? Is your future marriage worth $5 a month? Are your future relationships worth a little bit of money right now? 
to make sure that you don't st- find yourself stumbling down a path that degrades and demeans and makes people feel worse? Are you willing to do the hard work of reconciliation? Last week, Chris challenged us to an audit. As you guys walked in this morning, there were these little cards on your chairs. Last week, Chris asked us to to find out if our joy had been shaken due to any of these things. On the back, we've added a list of affirmations directly from the Bible. One of the books that I read in in my healing time was a book called Victory Over the Darkness by Neil T. Anderson. It's a Christian counselor, Ph.D., Super, super good book. And one of the things that it deals with most is your identity. So look at the back of this card next time you're having a moment where you're feeling less than valuable. Because I'm God's child, says, first, says John 1.12. I'm Christ's friend, says John 15.15. 15. I could go on, but you take a moment to read these. Be affirmed in who you are in Christ. And then the last thing I would ask you to do If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. I want you to write down HALT BS. H-A-L-T-B-S. Yes. HALT BS. The six most common triggers for anybody who is dealing with addiction, affliction, or suffering. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, and stressed. I'm pretty sure everybody in this room has felt some of those at some point, probably in the last year. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, and stressed. When you find yourself triggered and you're dealing with caustic junk in your history, halt the BS. Recognize what it is. Say, no, not today, Satan. I'm not going to let you wreck me today. I'm not going to let you wreck my marriage. I'm not going to let you wreck my friendships and my relationships. Because according to Ephesians 1.1, I'm a saint. And Satan doesn't have that kind of authority over me. Or Ephesians 1.5 says, I'm an adopted child of God. And if I'm an adopted child of God, then that means, Satan, you have no hold over me. And I don't care what lies you tell me. At the end of the day, folks, there's freedom on the other side. It does require a little bit of work, a little bit of guts, a little bit of grit, a little bit of forgiveness. But the freedom from that, in that grace, the freedom from that caustic junk is the sweetest thing I've ever known. And I know I'm not the only one who needs that freedom. So if you need that freedom, Chris and I and a couple of others, we're going to be hosting uh, accountability groups. One, one leader, three people. Gender specific, male leaders with male people, female leaders with female people. We're going to start that after this series is done. Your, your trauma doesn't have to be like my trauma, but it's trauma, and it needs to be dealt with. Your hurt doesn't have to be like my hurt, but you can't let it control your life anymore. You need to hold the BS and be set free. Amen? Father, we love you. Thank you for giving me the courage to be really honest today and really uncomfortable and saying things that I know, Lord, we need to hear. We need to hear about your love. We need to hear about your radical grace. We need to hear about the freedom in Christ. Lord, my, I, I pray that today, who you have placed before us to hear this message, 
that it, it sinks deep into their heart and gives them time to pause and question and think about who you are, how much you love us, and what freedom can look like. Help us to be strong in acknowledging our weaknesses and then help us to be weak in surrendering them to you, to you alone. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Christ's perfect name. And I invite everybody to say, Amen.